Our scripture this morning that we're going to be looking at is from Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, we're only going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. So I'm reading verses 1 through 4, then a few remarks as we get into our message this morning. Reading from the English Standard Version translation. And as he, meaning Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James, John and Andrew, asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? Let's pray. Father, this morning we would, we would ask because we need the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. Grant it in a great way that even out of these uh, four verses, as we begin this momentous chapter in Mark's Gospel, that even out of these four verses we would find your truth which leads to everlasting life. Your word which feeds us and builds us up in our most holy faith. Your word which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We would pray that we would come to your word this morning, praying even as David prayed, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Even in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. Now, as we come to this passage, we need to remember once again the context. We've been actually since, uh, since Easter, since Palm Sunday, we've been actually looking at the first few days of the last week of the life of Christ. Uh, Palm Sunday, Sunday is the day that Jesus entered into uh, Jerusalem. And then the very next day was the day that Jesus uh, interrupted the temple worship, uh, the cleansing of the temple that we call it. But it was a symbolic act of judgment upon the worship of Israel, upon the religious sentiments of the nation of Israel at that time. And then we come to Tuesday. We're still on that day, Tuesday, a day of great controversy. Uh, Mark's presentation of it is fairly compressed. Matthew shows us how many different things were going on that day. So very early in that day, all the way to this particular point, Jesus is involved in, in, in disputations with um, the scribes and the Pharisees and then the Sadducees and the Herodians. And then it climaxes with that episode in the temple where Jesus is watching all of the worshipers give their offerings. And you have the, the widow who gives her two copper coins. And so that sort of concludes the time in the temple. As they're leaving, one of the disciples looks back at the temple and makes this remark to Jesus. These, this wonderful building, these, you know, this 
wonderful edifice, this wonderful structure. And that's when Jesus utters the word, not a single stone is going to remain one upon another. And then they leave. And it's not until they reach the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple. Now, what you need to understand is the temple mound itself is on Mount Zion. Um, and, and, and our understanding today in terms of feet rather than metrics, but in terms of feet, the Mount, of, Mount Zion was about 2,500 feet tall. And then on top of that was the temple, which would have arisen to at least 100 feet higher in terms of the highest mount of the temple. Opposite was the Mount of Olives. The peak of Mount Olives is about 200 feet higher than Mount Zion. But you notice in the text that they reach a point where they're, quote, opposite the temple, meaning they're up on the Mount of Olives where they can look across and see this tremendous edifice that had so enthralled this particular disciple. And it's from that perspective that Jesus then answers the questions which are posed to him by the disciples. When's all of this going to happen? When is this going to be? So when we look at all of the, 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 the things that Jesus are going to say, looking back toward the temple, looking from east to west, uh, this chapter, there are five sections in it. And so you can estimate that I'm going to have at least five messages in Mark chapter 13. We also know that it's one of the most debated messages in, in all of the New Testament because connected with this are statements made by Luke, but particularly the statements made by Matthew. It's called the Olivet Discourse. Don't think that I'm going to be able to answer all of those questions. If the greatest scholars in the world have some disagreements, don't think that I'm going to settle those things for you. But we're going to work through this chapter and try to find those things that are most essential for our understanding of what Mark is trying to say to the church at Rome, the first audience, to the New Testament world, sort of the secondary audience, and to us. We're going to try to understand what's this message supposed to say to us as believers even today. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at one central idea, and you'll see the significance of it as we work through this passage, this one central idea is that the disciples believed Jesus with respect to this prophecy. That is to say that they had reached the point in their walk with Christ that the most difficult thing that Jesus could say to a Jew, the destruction of the temple, the annihilation of the temple, which entailed the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, which involved the concept of God's great judgment upon His people. The most devastating thing that a Jew could ever hear, the disciples heard from the lips of Christ. And they believed Him. They trusted in the word of the Lord. And therefore, the message to us would be this. We also must trust in the word of the Lord. Now, in terms of the passage itself, these four verses, we can look at it from three perspectives. We can see how the disciples were impressed by the temple. 
In response, Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of the temple. And then finally, we're going to consider the fact that they were believing Jesus in terms of the judgment placed upon the temple. Now, in terms of this this thing of being impressed by the temple, we read this in verse 1. As he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Now, um, to appreciate the reaction of the disciple at this point and the remarks that they make to Jesus, and apparently what one said, the others took up, and they also were getting involved in this great adoration of the temple. We see this in Matthew and so forth. We have to recognize things about the temple for us to appreciate how they were responding. The first of these would be the impressive size of this temple. Uh, It was incredibly vast. Um, Solomon's temple, which was in of itself one of the greatest structures uh, of that era in all of human history, uh, was less than half the size of this temple, which Herod had built expanding the second temple, the temple that had been built after Solomon's temple was destroyed. Uh, In square footage, the temple and the temple area, the entire perimeter, could contain more than 10 football fields. Now, you know a football field is 300 feet by 150 feet, something like that, right? 100 yards by 50 yards, right? Huge. Football field's big. This was more than 10 times that square footage in size. Then you have the temple proper in the center, surrounded uh, on the, by the court of the Gentiles on the north and on the south. Uh, the temple area itself, which included the court of the women, the court of Israel, the court of the priests, the holy place, that square footage was larger than three football fields. And then you had the matter of the height. So you're thinking about the, the court of the Gentiles first. As you moved up toward the temple, you had to go 14 steps up to the women's court. And then to the court of Israel, another 15 steps. And then a few more steps to the court of the priest. And then 12 more steps up to the the sanctuary itself. So we're talking about, and then on top of that, the temple was no less than 60 feet tall. So you're moving up here maybe 30, 40 feet And then the temple, you have an edifice above the level of the court of the Gentiles of perhaps 100 feet tall. That's huge. Now, not only the impressive size, but the stones which were used to to build this temple. This has relevance in terms of what Jesus said. Josephus, the Jewish historian, who wrote right after the destruction of this temple in AD 70, records that some of the stones making up the structure were 45 cubits in length, 5 cubits in height, and then 6 in breadth. Now, converting that to feet, that would have been 67 and a half feet long, um, and then 5 and, five and a half feet, 7 and a half feet high, and about 9 feet in width. A single stone. And there were many of those stones that comprised the foundations and structures of the temple. So this huge structure itself rising above everything else up on the highest reaches of Mount Zion would have been then opposite the top point or near the top of the Mount of Olives where Jesus and the disciples were. Impressive in terms of its size, but then also 
you have its impressive beauty. Josephus again relates some things about the exterior of the temple. So we've got this 60, the stone structure, 60 feet in height on all sides of the temple itself. It was gold plated. Now stop and think about the massive amounts of gold that plated the exterior of the temple edifice. When the sun rose, the reflection off this golden-plated building was so brilliant that looking at the temple was like looking directly into the sun. From a distance, the temple complex itself would appear like a snow-clad mountain. So if you were a few miles off to the north, east, west, or south, and you were looking up and seeing Mount Zion and the temple on top of it, it would appear to be a snow-covered mountain because any part of the temple which was not plated in gold was actually made of stones of purest white. So the disciples were not off the mark at all in their remarks to Jesus about the wondrous nature of this building and the wondrous nature of the stones. They were wonderful stones. It was a wonderful edifice. But we also need to connect, because it would have been a connection in their own minds, what was this temple supposed to signify? What was this temple supposed to mean to them? Well, it was the centerpiece of the Jewish faith. Faithful Jews properly saw the temple as the very house of God. It was his dwelling place. It re represented the covenant truth that God dwells with his people. But more, it had its main design according to the law that not only God dwells with his people, but God dwells with his people in such a way that a holy God can accept sinful human beings. But, but how is that possible? Well, the law prescribed that there had to be three most significant elements for that to take place. Sinful human beings must bring their sin and sin offerings to the priest who represented the mediator between God and man in order then that that sacrificial animal would be slain. All the while communicating the truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, as well communicating and prefiguring what Jesus was going to do when he came and died for us upon the cross. It was the very centerpiece of Israel that in order for Israel to worship the God who dwelt in this house, there needed to be a mediator, the priesthood. There needed to be the shedding of blood, and the worshipers need to come fully understanding their sinfulness before a holy God. In order to be near to a holy God, you and I must have our sins atoned for. That's what the temple signified to those Jews who truly understood the truth of God's great covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the covenant renewed at Sinai. This is the God to whom they had their entire lives ordered, to whom they owed everything with respect to who they were. So something like that is going on in their praise of the temple. 
But at that point, uh, Jesus could very well have said, there's some misplaced loyalty in your adoration of this temple. Because only the day before Jesus had shut down the temple worship, at least temporarily, in order to prefigure and to symbolize the coming judgment that God was going to bring upon this temple and because of what had begun to take place within this temple. Jesus said, this place has become a den of thieves. You have made my father's house a den of thieves. Now that phrase comes from the seventh chapter of Jeremiah. The theme of that entire chapter in Jeremiah is completely relevant to what Jesus did on that day in cleansing the temple and what he says this day about the coming destruction. In verse 4, Jeremiah had warned the people, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Meaning, when, when, when Jeremiah was pronouncing to them that judgment was coming, the people responded, no, we've got the temple of God. God dwells here. We will never be defeated. It will never happen to us. They refused to repent because they thought they were safe because they had the temple of God in their presence. So, as the disciples leave the temple, which the day before Jesus had symbolically judged, they're still enthralled. They're still greatly enthralled. So here's the concern. Were they seeing the temple the same way Jesus saw the temple? Did they see the temple the same way that Jesus saw the temple? They adored it. They were in love with this outward structure that had been the centerpiece of the faith of Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus was angrily disturbed with its inward fallen condition. They saw its beauty. Jesus saw its desecration. They venerated and held sacred what Jesus was judging as wicked and sinful. Now that's where we need to stop. We need to pause. We need to think. We need to mull over what is going on at that point and then ask ourselves this question. If the disciples were holding on to something as sacred that Jesus has judged as wicked and sinful, if they were valuing something so highly that Jesus had already condemned, is it possible that in our own lives as Christians we have ever done the same thing? Do we value anything that Christ has condemned or rejected or judged? Often the Bible doesn't give us a lot of specifics about some of these things, but sometimes it gets right to the very basic thing. We've already read this passage. 
Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Is there anything in our lives which we value that Jesus has rejected? Now, while the disciples were were basking in the impressiveness of the temple, Jesus turned their thoughts upside down with his statement of verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And you and I can be assured of this, that in the working of God in your life, everything you hold dear that God has rejected he will destroy. In some way or another, in some manner or other, God will keep working in you to take away those things that you hold dear that He has condemned. That's sanctification. That's growing in holiness. That's the discipline of the Lord by which he works righteousness and godliness in us. And although it may seem painful, the writer of Hebrews says, it works the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Now the second thing we see brings us to what Jesus says about the destruction of the temple. What Jesus says here is both prophecy and judgment. And this prophecy was fulfilled. Historical record, A.D. 70, when the Roman armies had, after a a three-and-a-half-year siege uh, surrounding Jerusalem, finally broken through the walls, uh, they razed the temple. The earliest historical records, which... Again, Josephus, the credit goes to him, written shortly after this took place, uh, tell us how incredibly devastated all of the city was, but especially everything with respect to the Temple Mount. In fact, uh, observers say that the area on top of Mount Zion looked as though there had never been a city or habitation there at all except for a section of the temple walls that had been left as though it was intentionally left by the Roman armies to signify how great the destruction had actually been. But the temple itself, the main temple structure, was gone. Its its massive destruction was certainly motivated from the Roman perspective because of all of the gold that they were intending to retrieve and plunder from the temple site. Now, why this destruction? Why this great destruction? Why did this have to take place? Why did God have to destroy his temple? Because it was the biblical way of God demonstrating 
to the Jews that they were fully and completely under his judgment. You see, there's biblical precedent to what takes place. And perhaps some Bible history here is important for us to appreciate this and to understand this. Six and a half centuries earlier, in 586 B.C., the Babylonian armies had surrounded Jerusalem on their third and final attack upon the Jews, and they broke through the walls of Jerusalem. They took the walls down, and they destroyed the Temple of Solomon, a a devastating destruction, and they took the Jews into exile. Now, that happened as God's judgment, because of their spiritual rebellion against him, because they had been time and again worshiping other gods. That's the basic storyline of the book of Jeremiah. And so, coming back again to Jeremiah chapter 7, which is what Jesus referred to when he cleansed the temple symbolically, we read this. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough, to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. So Jeremiah records again and again in the book of Jeremiah the sin of idolatry as the reason for God's great judgment. It was the downfall of God's people. Why God came to this point of destroying his city, destroying his temple, exiling his people. So consequently... This judgment was spoken by Jeremiah many times like this. And now because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke, you persistently did not listen. And when I called, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all of your kinsmen, all of the offspring of Ephraim. Now that's referring to the northern tribes who had been deported 150 years earlier. Now here God is saying that judgment is going to come during this time of Jeremiah like it had come to Israel at the time of Shiloh. Now you go, well, Shiloh, what's this all about? So we have to back up. We have to back up 500 years to see the reference that God's prophecy is referring to. Before the first kings of Israel, before the, the, the temple was ever built, during the time of the judges, the last period of the time of the judges, when the Israelites were worshiping God at the tabernacle, the tabernacle that was located at Shiloh, this is during the time of the boyhood and young manhood of Samuel, who was the last of the judges and the one who coronated the first king of Israel. But before there's a king, we have what takes place here. Eli is the priest at Shiloh. He has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are wicked men. The Philistines are the main enemies of Israel at this time, and they array themselves to do battle against the Israelites, and the Israelites, out of their fear that they're going to be defeated, send to Eli at Shiloh and say, bring the Ark of the Covenant. If we have God with us, we will succeed. Sounds like the Nazis in Indiana and Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? 
thinking that somehow there's some kind of magic connected to this. So they send for the ark. The ark comes from Shiloh to the battlegrounds. Hophni and Phinehas come as the priest. And the outcome of the battle? The Philistines annihilate the Israelites. A man of Benjamin who survives the battle, carries the message back to Eli at Shiloh. Now, Eli was about 100 years old, a very heavy man, sitting on a stool at the gate. And the news he hears is this. Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons... Hophni and Phinehas are dead and the ark of God has been captured. Eli hears this news. He falls backwards in a seat, breaks his neck, and he dies. Then his daughter-in-law, who's the wife of Phinehas, who is pregnant, who's about to give birth, she hears the news that the ark of God has been captured. She hears that her father-in-law and her husband are dead. And she bows and she gives birth as the birth pains come on. But she's dying while she's giving birth. The midwives tried to comfort her by telling her, you're bearing a son. But her response was this. She names her son Ichabod saying, the glory of Israel has departed because the ark of God has been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband are now dead. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now that's the biblical precedent for the judgment that God visits upon the Israelites, upon the Jews, during the time of Jeremiah and the armies of Nebuchadnezzar from from Babylon. And it's all this string of references that are embedded in what Jesus says when he's in the temple and says, you have made the house of my father a den of thieves. All of these references are connected to the mind of the Jew who knew his history. And so the words of Jesus pronouncing judgment upon the temple follow the biblical precedent of what had taken place before. But there was also a covenantal obligation for this judgment to come. In the book of Deuteronomy, God's covenant with Israel, God had threatened Israel this way. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 20, he said, Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord. And then later in chapter 28, we have many, many, many things said as to what will take place and happen to the Jews if they do not remain faithful to their covenant. The judgment will be like this. Whereas you are as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight 
in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. When Jesus predicts the utter destruction of the temple, his prediction is the Messiah's verdict of judgment, that God's covenantal judgment is coming upon the Jews to the fullest at this time. The Messiah himself has come. The nation has rejected him. God's judgment will be so total and devastating. Now, the third point then is the response of the, of the disciples who were with him. Now, the text tells us that Jesus didn't say everything he was going to say until he got to Mount Olives, looking across back of the temple. Jesus waited until they left the city, left the temple, climbed to the mountain, and it also shows that it was just privately to the four disciples, to Peter, James and John, Andrew, the two sets of brothers, that Jesus basically responds to their question. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now note, there's no hesitation indicated in their question. They believed what Jesus was going to say. The most difficult thing that a Jew could ever comprehend, the most difficult thing that a Jew could ever imagine, Jesus has just uttered it, and they, without hesitation, have believed what Christ has said. So often in the history of Israel, the people had rejected the prophet's statements about judgment. And here the apostles show themselves to be in the true line of the true prophets of old, to believe the word of the Lord. Complete and full confidence in what Jesus has said. And that's the point of this message this morning. You and I as Christians, we will hear devastating things in our lives. What is it like for a pastor and his wife to bear a child? And with a few months, the Lord takes him. What it would be like for any of us to suffer the death of a child? What would it be like for any of us to suffer the loss of a spouse? What would it be like for any of us to to have all of our life going in a direction that looks good? Disaster hits. What would it be like for those believers up in Shasta County who two weeks ago were enjoying their house and the place that they had been given to and perhaps even thanking God for all the blessings in their lives and today be those who the fire has taken this away from them. Will you still believe Jesus? No matter how bad the news is that comes. Have you come to that point in your life and faith that you trust Jesus with everything?
Do you value Jesus this way? Peter, James and John, and Andrew apparently, finally, had come to this point of trusting Jesus to hear what to them was the most devastating news they could possibly hear. And without hesitation, they believed what he said because they asked the next follow-up questions. When will this be? What will be the signs that all of this is going to happen? When such things happen to us in our lives, our response needs to be like theirs. Not, no, Lord, may it never be. But rather, Lord, show us then what's to follow in light of the devastation that has happened. Now, what's the point of all of this? Only that in the New Testament we are told so strongly that your faith is only as strong and real as when it is tested. And the thing that Jesus values the most about faith is faith that is tested and proves itself in terms of continuing to trust in Jesus. And there's no greater thing in your life than to trust in Jesus. There is nothing more substantial for you in life than for you to believe in the name of God's only begotten Son. Everything else may be taken away from you, but if you have placed your faith in Jesus, as Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth the truth as it is in Jesus abides still because his kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Help us then, O Father, um, in the good times, but especially in the difficult times, to trust in your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.